Two of the most insightful statements I have ever read about grace come from two different pastors. Here's the first one, Pastor Max Lucado, and he said this, Grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. When I read that, I thought, you know, sometimes we limit what we mean by grace. Uh, We read that the gift of God is eternal life, and it is a gift of grace. And so sometimes we limit the concept of grace to the salvation that God gives to the undeserving. Now, that is true. That is what grace is. But it's not all that grace is. And Pastor Lucado is absolutely right. Grace is all about change. And it's all about God's power that enables us to change. Now last Sunday as we began James chapter 4, we saw why it is that we need to change. Remember these truths that we saw about us? That we are people who desire self-satisfaction. Most of the time in our lives, that self-satisfaction is often denied, and so we become very demanding. And then we saw we have the tendency to be worldly. Worldliness is ignoring God, then attempting to use God, and the result is we grieve God. Now, you know what these are right here? These are all of the causes of unhealthy conflict of fighting and quarreling. And we have to ask ourselves this question, how do we change this? Well, that's the second quote that I want to share with you this morning. Pastor Tim Keller says this, change won't happen through trying harder, but encountering the radical grace of God. That is so true. Change does not happen through simply trying harder. But it happens because we encounter the radical grace of God. Now, how can we encounter this radical grace? Well, that's the message that we're going to look at this morning. This morning, we're coming back to James chapter 4. And the message this morning is grace, the power to change. And there's a little principle that I want us to see this morning that James is going to work out for us in our lives. Uh, Perhaps you would join me and let's just read it together and then we'll see how James works it out for our instruction and understanding. Let's read it together. God offers the grace to change when we take the path to change inspired by the promise of change that he gives. Let's work that out this morning, but let's begin by asking the Lord to be our teacher. Father, we come now and we wait upon you. And we confess with the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Help us today to understand how grace works so that we can be changed, which is the whole purpose of salvation, that we might be changed and made like the one who has saved us, Jesus Christ. 
For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to James 1, and let's notice that, first of all, James teaches us that the power to change is the grace of God. That is the only power that will work to change your heart and to change mine. Now, notice what he says here in verse 6. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, let's set this again in the context. James has traced fighting and quarreling to three sources. Number one, in verse one, the flesh. That self-seeking desire to indulge oneself and gratify one's own wants. Then in verses 2 and 3, he traces it to pride. Pushing oneself ahead and striving with those who interfere with us. And then in verse 4, he traces it to worldliness. The illicit values for popularity, power, control, and the things that we may want. But then in verse 5, what the Lord says to us is He is a jealous God. He wants our full devotion. And so what we have to do is we have to say no to the flesh. We have to dethrone the ego that pushes ahead of others. And we have to turn our back on the world. Now can I just say, that's a very tall order, isn't it? That is a very, very tall order. We are powerless on our own to do that. We cannot do that. Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 13, verse 23 said, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? So can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That's true for all of us. And that's why we need to receive the power for change. Now, one of the most encouraging statements in all the Bible is this opening phrase in verse 6, but he gives more grace. What we cannot do, the grace of God can do. It's interesting, the word more here comes from the Greek word mega. We get our English word mega from this word, We could read this, he gives us mega grace. Now you know what mega means. Mega means that you have more than enough to meet whatever need you have. So what the Bible is saying here to us is this. No matter how big the world, no matter how strong the flesh... No matter how great my ego is, God is greater and grace is greater. Grace is greater. And therefore, it is our greatest need. Now, as James continues to talk about this, notice the second truth that he unpacks. He tells us that the path to change is humility before God. Did you notice... The one condition God lays down for receiving grace is humility. Does that surprise you? He says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace 
to the humble. You know what I would have thought? I would have thought you get grace by praying, by being spiritual, by studying the Bible, by learning. That's how I would have said you get grace. By the way, do you know those are the results of grace? Those come because of the working of grace. But the one thing he lays down for receiving grace is humility. It's very interesting in the New American uh, Bible, there's a little note at this point. And it's very insightful. Listen to this. The point of this whole argument is that God wants the happiness of all, but that selfishness and pride can make that impossible. We must work with Him in humility. And that is exactly the point. When I say I need grace, and I must humble myself before God, then, says the Bible, change can occur. Now, the next question is, how? How do I humble myself? How do I work with the Lord in humility? Did you notice the first word in verse 7? Look at it. What's the first word in verse 7? Submit. Did you notice those two next to each other? The last word of verse 6 is be humble. The first word of verse 7 is to submit. Do you see what's going on here? Submission is the key to humility. By the way, if you follow this through the Bible, you will find this taught over and over again that submission is always the key to whether or not we are humble or not. Uh, There's a series of handbooks on the books of the Bible that Bible translators use when they translate the Bible into other languages. In the handbook on James at this point is a very helpful comment. The most visible sign of humility is the willingness to submit to others. That is powerful. The most visible sign of humility is the willingness to submit to others. May I just stop and say, does that describe me? Did this describe you? Do I have a submissive spirit? Or am I defiant, unbending, resistant, particularly when I cannot have my own way? God is saying here, He wants to be the captain of our soul. He wants to be the leader of our lives. Do you know this word submit was used of a voluntary attitude of giving in and cooperating? That's what God is looking for. We must have an attitude of of giving in and cooperating because we want to. And when that happens, humility comes 
and grace can be unleashed. Now, I love what James does in this passage. He, like Jesus, is such a helpful teacher that he tells us how we submit to God. If we wonder, how can I develop this submissive spirit, James goes right through it. He, he makes it so crystal clear for us. Let's look at this, and along the way, ask yourself, is this my relationship with God? Here's the first one. Resist Satan. In verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Here's the first thing that must happen. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, the Bible teaches us that the chief sin of Satan that caused him to fall was the sin of pride. Most Bible students uh, believe that Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, describe the fall of Satan, and they describe for us this highest of the archangels, who was called Lucifer, who became Satan. And he fell for one reason, one reason alone, his pride. Look at what it says. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, and now will you read with me the I wills of Satan. Join me. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Did you notice five I wills? This was the downfall of Satan. And ever since, he tempts people to be just like him. I knew a pastor whose three-year-old son's favorite word when he was told no, was I want. And the pastor said when his three-year-old son was told that he would have to wait forever he wanted, whatever he wanted, the three-year-old would say, I want it now. And one day the pastor stood before the church and he said to his church, my three-year-old son is just a little he-devil running around. And I thought, can't we all be little devils running around, pushing, shoving, demanding, impatient, quick-tempered, sharp-tongued, easily offended, stubborn, unlistening, and controlling? When we are rebellious like that, we cannot resist Satan. One of the most powerful statements I've ever heard that has stuck with me through the years is this. A rebel can't resist the chief rebel. And that is absolutely true. When my attitude is, I will, I want, 
me. In whatever area it is, we cannot resist the chief rebel. You take two young people, show one who is rebellious, who will not listen, who is willful. You take the other one who is submissive and has a compliant spirit, and you can tell who's the one who will not be able to resist Satan. See, when we stand up to our own rebellion, the Bible says Satan flees because we have turned against him. Second, Return to God, says James. James says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. If our hearts are filled with pride, rebelliousness, selfishness, and strife, we are in Satan's territory. And if God kicks Satan out of heaven for that, he will resist us too. So, as long as we are letting the devil in, the Bible is saying we are pushing God out. A pastor by the name of John Captain preached a sermon on this passage. The title of the sermon was, Grace for the Humble. And listen to what he said, and notice how he said... This is the way I was even when I was in church. Listen to what he said. When I left God for a few years, I was young and able to look after myself. I could do all things. Why should I ask God for help? My pride kept me away from Him. Whenever anyone had tried to point out what was wrong in my life, even while I had still been in church, I got upset. They should mind their own business. And yet, now I see how I was allowing my pride to live more and more in the world and farther and farther away from God. But did you notice what the Lord says? If we will draw near to God, He will draw near to us. And we want that because it means reinforcements are on the way. Grace is coming. Now, we might say, all right, James, how do we return to God? How do we do that? Well, he tells us. Notice, we are to renew our consecration. Renew our consecration. Look at verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, do you know there's a very rich imagery here that we do not want to miss? The imagery here is um, what took place in the Old Testament when the priest drew near to serve God in the temple and would wash himself at the laver. This phrase, draw near, is referring to this very scene, the priest drawing near to minister to God in the temple. Cleanse your hands is a reference to this washing that he would do in the laver so that he could be fit for service of God. 
And when he uses the word purify here, it has to do with washing the clothes and bathing the whole body, uh, a ritual that the priest would go through so that he could be fitted to serve the people of God on behalf of the God he was drawing near. Now, I think all of us know what's going on here. These symbolic acts point to deeper spiritual truths. This is describing the forgiveness of our actions and the forgiveness of our attitudes. When he says, cleanse our hands, that's a reference to our actions. God requires the cleansing of our actions. There must be a confession, what I did was wrong. And then when he talks about purifying our heart, that's a reference to our motives and our desires. God requires a renewed consecration. My heart has become infected. I love the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this verse. Listen to his paraphrase. You are sinners, get your hands clean again. Your loyalty is divided. Get your hearts true once more. Now notice, when we renew our consecration, it involves a second step in returning to God. And that is repenting of sin. Look what James says in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know what James is doing? He's echoing Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes. The second Beatitude is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And James now is is reflecting what Jesus said in the second Beatitude. What does he mean by this description? Well, very clearly. A half-hearted or light-hearted approach to forgiveness won't cut it. For us to be truly sorry for something means that we are distressed over it. We feel a certain regret and grief. Let me define these terms for you in verse 9. Wretched means to be devastated over your sin. Mourn refers to an inner grief. Weeping was the way somebody felt at a funeral. And gloom? That was used of the publican who was so conscience-stricken before God, the Bible says he would not even lift his eyes towards heaven. He was so conscience-stricken. Truly repentant people are pained. They're hurt by their sin. I know of a pastor who had a very sharp tongue that wounded people. What is interesting about that pastor is he pastored the largest sister church of ours in Lower Michigan. At the time when he was there, it was the largest church in our fellowship of churches. You know what began to happen? People began to come to the deacons and say, the pastor has wounded us and offended us. 
And there were many people that started coming to the deacons. And so they went to this pastor and said, uh, what's going on? You know what he said? He said, what I said to those people, they needed to hear. And so I'm not going to apologize for what I told them. And he refused to humble himself over his sharp tongue. Because he refused to cleanse his hands and purify his heart of his stubborn pride, he offended more and more people until one day... Satan split the largest church in the lower Michigan district wide open. And the very pastor who preached from the pulpit every Sunday would not resist Satan and draw near to God in repentance. And here are some questions that we need to ask. Do I hurt when I utter hurtful words? Am I pained at being selfish and self-centered? Am I ashamed in those times when I've been stubborn? Am I grieved when I have demanded my rights? One day in a deacon's meeting, an angry deacon stood up and he shook his fist. He said, I have my rights. And one of the wiser deacons on the board said, Brother, you don't mean that. You don't mean that. He said, if we all had our rights, we would be in hell. And he was exactly right. Now let's ask ourselves this morning, do I submit to God like this? Do I resist Satan so that when I see evidence of his pride and willfulness, I turn from that? Do I turn back to the God that I have strayed from? And in that turning back to Him, is there a renewal of my consecration? I cleanse my hands, I purify my heart. And do I deal radically with sin by repenting of it? This is the way of grace. Because it's the way of submission, it's the way of humility, and God gives grace to the humble. Now notice the last thing that James says in this lesson. Here's the promise. The promise of change is elevation by God. Look at what he says. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Do you know this elevation is best illustrated by the prodigal son? 
When the prodigal son humbled himself, he was elevated. He was forgiven, wasn't he? His father ran, threw his arms around him, kissed him, and he was wonderfully relieved by forgiveness. And then he got respect back in the family because there was a robe put on him, he was given a ring on his finger, he was given sandals, and he was renewed to a position of respect in front of others. And then remember how he got joy. The Bible says they filled the fatted, killed the fatted calf, and he began to make merry with his friends. He experienced a renewed enjoyment in his relationships. You know, Pastor James McDonald from Harvest Bible Chapel preached a sermon on this very passage. And he summed up a lesson that perhaps is hard for us to understand. But this is what he said. James is teaching us with God, the way up is down. In fact, we could reverse this. With God, the way down is up. You see, it's so easy for us to think that the way up is by self-exertion. The way up is pushing myself forward. The way up is demanding the rights that I believe that we have. But here James is teaching us a totally opposite principle. He is saying to us, with God, the way up is the way down. In fact, as we close out this message this morning... Let's look at it in a visual way. What happened to the prodigal son? When he resisted Satan, returned to God, renewed his consecration, and repented of sin, he was forgiven by God, he was respected by others, and he had renewed joy in his relationship in the family. What he experienced was this principle that with God, the way down is the way up. And I don't know about you here this morning. If I were to say to you, how would you like to enjoy forgiveness by God? How would you like to enjoy the respect of others? How would you like to enjoy the relationships that God wants us to have? How many of us today would say, no, I'm not interested in that? It is what God gives when we allow His grace to change us. Sometimes at the close of a message, it's helpful for us to affirm ourselves what God is teaching. How do we submit to God? And how does He exalt us when we do? Would you join me? Let's affirm it together. Resist Satan. Return to God. Renew consecration. Repent of sin. Forgiven by God. Respected by others, 
Joy in relationships. This is how grace changes us.